friends. This is Dr. Michael Williams, and welcome back to another episode of the Diversified Path Podcast. This podcast explores how investing in diversity can lead to a high return of investment in pathology and laboratory medicine by learning from the knowledge and experiences of diverse voices within our field. My next guest is Dr. Kenneth Obenson. Dr. Obenson graduated with a medical degree from the University of Lagos in Nigeria in 1987. After practicing family medicine in his native Cameroon for a couple of years, he migrated to the U.S. for postgraduate training in anatomic and clinical pathology in 1992 at the D.C. General Hospital, Howard University Hospitals, then the Louisiana State University Hospital, Sheraport of Pathology, and finally at Indiana University, uh, where he trained in forensic pathology. Dr. Obenson also trained in perinatal pathology and is board certified in all five disciplines. He is a regular contributor to the academic press, both as an author, a reviewer, and a chapter contributor, and sits on numerous local and international committees related to the practice of forensic and perinatal pathology. He is currently employed as a forensic pathologist at the St. John Regional Hospital and serves as Chief Forensic Pathologist for the province of New Brunswick in Eastern Canada. Without further ado, here's Dr. Ken Ovenson. All right. Hi again, friends. This is Dr. Michael Williams here with another episode of the Diversifying Path podcast. So I'm here with my next guest. So can you tell us who you are, where you're from, and your pronouns? My name is Ken Obenson. I am originally from West Africa. I now work in Canada. I've worked in Canada for a while. Um, My pronouns are he, him. So can you tell us what... First of all, what got you into medicine and then your your journey... um, into working as a Canada medicine well I have my parents to thank for that um, because <laughs> I mean it, the the system in 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 um, well we were colonized by the British so we inherited the educational system that they left behind which means that you go you know medicine is an undergraduate program so it's five years out of high school now in Nigeria at the time, I think they had recently developed an alternative pathway to university, which was um, you take an entrance exam and you uh, enter a preliminary year before you enter undergraduate studies. And so most of us, I left, uh, we, 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 we go up to grade 12, but the content of our grade 12 is more like most of first year in the U.S., in North America. So many people who went, who did grade 12, uh, who came over to North America would have done three years of, of, of undergraduate education. So for me, I left high school uh, in grade 10, which is uh, at 16, and I took this entrance exam. I took the entrance exam because my old man had registered me for it. He, he was a university professor, so he knew all the, the rules, the tricks, and everything about getting in, and he was aware of this rule. So fortunately, I 
did well enough on the exam to be considered for med school. So what happened was I did a preliminary year, and then I, uh, once I was successful in that, I entered medicine. Um, so um, I didn't have any lofty ambitions to be a, to be the win the next Nobel Prize in medicine or anything. I didn't even know I had a career in medicine until my old man registered me for that entrance exam. So um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and the funny thing was, my mother was um, a nurse and then went to law school, and she also she wanted me to go do medicine. On the other hand, my old man was an engineer. He studied in Ohio State. And um, he wanted me to go to Ohio State and do engineering. Um, and so here you have me, 16-year-old me. I have this paper in my hand with an offer to go to med school versus going back for another two years to finish, uh, you know, uh, pre-med or whatever, and then go off to the U.S. at 18 to go engineering. And I'm like, man, <laughs> I don't think I want to do that. Uh, you know, a bird in hand is water in the bush. Again, for me, it was a strategic decision. It had nothing to do with any particular desire to be a physician. Uh, it was very strategic. And in fact, when I was offered admission, um, I hesitated and my dad said, why? I said, well, I don't know if I can tolerate this blood thing. <laughs> Paradox, eh? And, um, <laughs> and so um, he says, listen, if you get into med school and you decide you don't want to do medicine, you can always opt out and do something else. But if you start something else and try to get into medicine, you, it may not be as easy. And in fact, you know, getting you in this time wasn't easy at all, right? Um, so I said, okay, I mean, my, my old man, I mean, remember, I'm 16 going on 17, my head is on fire, I'm a teenager. We never agreed on anything, but when it came to education, I listened to him. Because, you know, hey, he was a university professor, who would know better? So um, because of that, I decided I'll, I'll take the med school offer for 500, Alex, and that's what they did. So, um, so that's how I got into medicine. Now, how did I get into pathology? That was such an interesting origin story. I think for most of us, like, we're just like, all right, perfect. Like, we're going to go into, like, like, we planned this in, like, college. We did a whole four years and all that. And your, your father was like, this is the way to go. And you're like, okay. And then we're going we're gonna, to, like, go forward, of course, talk about your career in pathology. But the, the hesitancy towards blood must have been, like, something you look back on and you're just like, wow, like, I guess, like, I could do it, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, it, the, again, the paradox is, uh, I'm now doing something that involves exposure to blood and guts practically on a daily basis. But what did my 16-year-old self know? So anyway, um, so that's how I got into med school. Now, because I was so young and we started, um, as this, this, we were in a six-year program, there were people who came, I graduated from university with people who started when I was in my third year, and it, it seemed endless the amount of time that we spent in and in fact and the, and one of the the challenges i guess what made us 
all finished. Not all of us were 16. I think probably about five, ten percent, if that many. Uh, most people were, you know, high, you know, had finished high school or done undergraduate degrees and so on and so forth. I think there may have been somebody with even a master's. Um, but what what drove us to finish was because there was no, there was nothing in between entering and exiting. You either finished with your MD or you didn't. So there was every motivation to just, it was a marathon, it wasn't a sprint. There was every motivation to make sure we got to the end. So anyway, I think by the second or third year of my education in university, I started developing an interest in pathology. Now in, in, in the Anglo-Saxon system, you have these, they call them professional exams. I'm not sure why they call them professional exams, but that's what they call them. Uh, there's the first professional, which you do after 12 months, depending on your institution. Then there's the second professional, which the first professional is anatomy, physiology, and biochemistry. The second professional is your pathologies, your pharmacologies, and so on, all the other preclinical stuff. Then your third professional is um, part of your clinical. For us, it was all clinical. And the final exit exam was um, in public health, essentially public health stuff. So it was in the second, my third year university where we had um, old style. Uh, you, you must, you will be familiar with, you know, the, the fact that most of the, the, a lot of research and a lot of descriptions uh, of old, of original pathology came from the Germans. And we had these two professors who had trained in Germany. And so the, that the, the way they taught was very hands-on. We Every time we were on the, um, I'm not sure if it was every time we were on the autopsy rotation, but uh, on the morbid anatomy rotation. But I do remember that on several occasions, um, we went down to the morgue and the resident who had done the autopsy presented the organs and so on and so forth. And we all sit, sat around in an auditorium, almost like they would have done four or five hundred years ago, and watched this presentation. And, um, and so I got interested in that. That seemed to, it seemed to be, oh, okay, I mean, you mean you can actually determine the cause of death just by examining the organs, and remember, remember this is way before molecular and all whatnot. And um, so a lot of the cases that we did made an impression on me. One of them was, I think, a five-year-old boy who had stuck his finger in the socket the previous day and had been electrocuted. And I remember it was around 11 a.m. the following day, and I remember looking at the guy and thinking what I had done at 11 a.m. the day before. So all those things sort of piqued my interest in not just doing autopsies as, um, what do you call it, as a means to earning a living, but as a preventative measure, as a public health measure, because I think a lot of the deaths that we see can pre be prevented if there are sufficient safeguards. Uh, we can't prevent everything, but we can prevent some things. Yeah. No, I was going to say it's it's interesting when we all discuss about like forensics, autop, forensics and autopsy. Um, and I say that because uh, media-wise, it, it does basically make it seem like, yeah, like, you know, within like three hours, we can find the answer without getting all these ancillary stuff. But I think in, in, in the terms of medicine itself, uh, when we discuss about forensics, 
it also it almost seems like it's like anti-medicine if that makes sense because in medical school we're just taught all right these are ways of giving like life-saving treatments life-saving treatments but then when we on the autopsy side or forensic side when there's something that can be prevented that can help medicine public health in general it's not something that's really i guess talked about or something that's really um publicized at all it's always like okay this person died unfortunately but like it doesn't it, it it's not i guess really thought of and it should be thought of of how we can learn from that in order to like enhance current life basically being philosophical in my aspect i i agree absolutely the, the thing is i think um the we've been as you say attuned to think of the criminal aspect or the forensic aspect in terms of the medical legal aspect of doing autopsies but um once you've settled is it a homicide, is it a suicide, or is it a criminal case? The next thing is, okay, are there public health implications? And I think a couple uh, name meetings ago, I did present on the, the concept of critical values or criti critical value reporting in forensic pathology. And the more we think of uh, forensic pathology in public health terms, the more perhaps going to another question which I'm sure you'll ask later on the more we may be able to convince people about why they need to enter forensic pathology not just pathology but forensic pathology yeah so that's how I got interested in forensic pathology and it was easily my best subject in in medical school so I that's um, it was basically all sewn up okay. by third So where year. did you do, and I'm sure you let us know, the uh, residency uh, and then fellowships uh, on your end? What was your journey like that, like, I should say? Yeah, I did, I did residency in, uh, I started in um, D.C. I started in the, I first started in D.C. General on the, in the Howard Program for Transitional Surgery. At the time, um, I knew that you know, it was a f training was five years to get APCP, and one year could be a clinical year, or research, or whatever you you fancied. For me, I thought, well, you know, I am never going to see patients after this year, and I need to understand how the American clinician thinks. So it makes it made sense for me to do the clinical year. So that's what I did. So I did four months of surgery, couple urology, internal medicine, pediatrics, emergency room, and so on. And I I remember there was um, the one of the pediatric, the chief of pediatrics, uh, tried hard to persuade me to 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 go into pediatrics, but I didn't like the call. So I said, nope. But you know, side story: this lady, she's still alive. I will not call her name very pleasant um she she everybody was terrified of her except me for some reason she 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 liked me and she always she always thought i you know even though i said naughty things n-u-t-t-y she thought well um he's like my baby brother i'm gonna deal with it so she really pushed for me to get into pediatrics and i i would have but for fate uh, or my own determination um, I would have ended up in pediatrics, but I wanted to do pathology, so I had to, 
I had to say no thanks, but no thanks. So um, I did one year in a, in a rotating internship, essentially, um, when I got to North America, the U.S., and then did um, uh, APCP at Howard University. Um, Dr. Carter was there then, um, but I didn't do forensics then. I, I, I finished and then I went to uh, Louisiana and did um, uh, cytopathology. Then uh, fate intervened again. I joined the UN agency and um, decided to go to Jamaica because my wife is from Jamaica. And I worked there for a couple years. Um, the money was, was great. It was probably... I earned more there than I earned here, but I worked. I worked. <laughs> I worked. I worked till, till I developed plantar fasciitis. Now, um, the, the, things have changed. Uh, I, will, I worked so hard because I was the only pathologist at the time. The environment has changed. There are a couple more pathologists, so, you know, it's a bit... It's a bit less uh, um, uh, burdensome, but at the time, if I went on vacation for one month, I came back to one month's work because there were very few pathologists on the island, and those who were there were already maxed out. And I remember one, or hearing of one, telling a patient, listen, you might as well wait till Obenson comes back because if you bring it here, unless it's a cancer or cancer is suspected, it'll not be attended to oh, for a while. Wow. So, um, I was going to say, like, yeah. oh. no, I was going to say, it's like, that's, it's crazy, I think, in terms of when we hear about, like, even currently the needs for pathologists and, like, how the um, growth job market is basically just growing exponentially. But then you're, you know, in areas where, like, like when you, uh, went back and worked in the UN in Jamaica. Did you think you were be like the only like pathologist like in that area at all, or was that like something that was like new to you? Um, no, I knew I knew the previous pathologist. There had been a a lady from Cuba, also working under a UN UN mandate, so to speak, UN sponsorship. And her term was up, and she decided she wanted to go back to Cuba. So I had a greater motivation to stay because my spouse is Jamaican. But the work was um, a lot. There was a lot of work. I mean, imagine I was doing uh, running an AP lab as well as doing autopsies. And I did a lot of forensic cases i would say them aside from fellowship uh that's probably when i've where i've done i've had the most intense exposure to violence uh, uh, at, uh you know as a forensic pathology in such a short time and so uh the experience was invaluable because that's how i got recruited up here um, because they needed somebody with ap experience as well as um uh, strong, strong, strong forensic background. So I did a lot uh, of interesting cases down in, in Montego Bay. Um, I did the only thing that we didn't have uh, decent support for was toxicology. Um, but again, in most cases um, the cause of death was pretty obvious. Uh, you know, 
when you have violent trauma due to a, a bladed weapon or a firearm, it's it's pretty straightforward most of the time. So there were there were lots of those cases. I did go to court, and there were some interesting cases I went to court on. I I would say eye opening, but I guess it's it's just it's experience in a different setting that I don't know. For me, I'm learning personally, like. You never know what you're gonna really see until you see it, and like even though you're doing fellowship or t or training, you you're always still learning and like you know improving your skills and skill set. Um, but yeah, no. So I I guess I I was kind of interested too in terms of, uh, and I know you're gonna talk about it, so I interrupted. But um, making your way to um, you know sunny Montego Bay until Canada. Um, and, <laughs> and like the, like how, well, you know, how you got recruited and what the differences you've seen working there, um, compared to like the, I guess, U.S. system or even in Jamaica. Right. Well, the, uh, you know, the, I knew there were some spots, um, in Eastern Canada where there were vacancies and where they needed pathologists and I knew I had all the qualifications and the experience. Um, the, the, the practice would be similar to what I would have had in Jamaica so that was also um, uh, a push to apply. And so I did and I, you know, met the head of department. It was a very... Um, interesting welcome a very pleasant welcome uh when i came here when i migrated up here uh the first thing the immigration officer said to me was uh welcome home now <laughs> um you know when you, and this was in 2001 uh about six months before uh, 9 11 so it was a very very different um experience it was a very different it was it was nice to be yeah. uh, received that way um so yeah so how did how how does the how does the tr the practice differ the, the practice here i mean if compared to jamaica at the time i can't speak to jamaica now but the practice here was uh was pretty much this in terms of procedures it's the same thing the difference was we had access to in-house toxicology which um, is extremely rare even in the United States in, and in practically nowhere else in Canada do I know of that they have in-house toxicology so that was a big bonus the second thing was um, we have um, access to x-ray facilities that hospital x-ray facilities so here I've done everything from MRIs to CTs to post-mortem angiograms and so on and so forth you know without a problem usually we, we go talk to the radiologist if it's an unusual request and on as long as you you know you're polite and you explain it to them they almost never you know decline to to interpret them uh, as far as CTs on babies and stuff, it's more or less standard. So when we ask for them, they just, you know, they, they, they just do them. So we do get, I would say we have, in, and in fact, compared to the rest of North America for, a, for the size of province population that we have, we do pretty well with 
toxicology, with uh, forensic radiology. Um, we have uh, anthropologists. That's another difference between here and, and, and um, perhaps Jamaica. Is that at the time, uh, we didn't have access to an anthropologist, at least none that I knew about. Here we have we have one who's been who's well established and well known. Um, I have never had to use the forensic botanist, but there's one you know uh, about four hours away, five hours away. So, short answer is um, there's more access to the ancillary stuff, the ancillary testing that we need uh, compared to, and I think it's probably better than most places in I shouldn't say most many places in the U.S based on what I'm reading and hearing from peers across North America. Um, you know, a different, let's say a different phase of your life and also a different like part of the country and stuff. Um, but I guess with, with all your experiences so far, um, along, you know, along the way too with mentors that you have, what, what are your thoughts about mentorship, especially like with people of color entering medicine pathology like do you have any pearls or wisdoms that you wanted to share um for for example people who are listening who are maybe entering college or thinking about medical school or somewhere in a medical profession i would say for for people of color for people who represent a racialized or 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 gendered or financial minority, not just racialized, because access to medicine in in most of North America is still funneled through finances. If you don't have the money, you will not you will not get in, even if you have the brains. So, having the brains is one thing; doing well on the exams is another. But you still need money, and if you don't have money or a source of funding, you know, as they say, bank of mom and dad, it's not going to happen. So, you know, you end up, uh, the problem is, I think for many people of color, many minorities, uh, people of color, and so on and so forth, the problem will always be money. Um, there's also the issue of exposure. Now, p different people get exposed to forensic pathology at different points in time and uh, the bottom line is if you don't recruit early you will not get the people you need you I mean for, you cannot wait for instance till third year to start trying to get people into forensic pathology there's abundant literature saying you know stating this that you really don't need to start early so where can we start there's I would say no age is too young to start I mean we role model for many people. Um, there was a time when physicians were all men and you saw a female physician, it seemed to be abnormal. Now for many children, they don't know that men can, for, for some of them, not that they don't know, but for them it's strange to hear of male physicians because they're surrounded by that coterie of female physicians. So exposure is important early and often. But from my perspective, um, I try to make myself available to anybody who's interested in forensic pathology. I get several requests for research, uh, to fund, to support research, and so on and so forth. And I remember being um, uh, ignored or, you know, dismissed in letters that were written to me at the time. You may remember a time when we wrote letters and not just emails. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, I remember that. But my grandmother, she she would send me letters, and I was just like, "Oh, this is great." And if I if I I don't even know. It, that was, I remember that. I'm digressing. Go yeah. ahead. Well, I said that because I, I you know I wish I'd kept those letters. With email, you can always go through your email and search. Um, but with letters, I remember reading some letters, um, you know, really, really dismissive of, of, of my attempts to join the service. When I say service, I mean the training program and so on and so forth. And I met some of those people afterwards. They don't know who I am, but it's funny that we are now peers. And, um, you know, if you, if you, if you took those, um, slights as reasons not to continue you would have done yourself in so the, the point i was trying to get at was that when i get these messages or when i get these requests from linkedin or through email or whatever i try not i try i'm always polite and i always try to provide useful information i can't help everybody the same way i can you know some people are easier than others but i always try to offer a positive response positive reinforcement um and for me especially being uh one of two maybe three black forensic pathologists in canada it's essentially i think for many children uh, both white and black in the part of the country where i live i am the face of forensic pathology so it's important that I, when I get an opportunity to communicate, to teach, or whatever, I, you know, I apply myself as much as possible. So that's, you know, it's, it's like uh, basically you help, you know, I would like to say that I want to help people the way I was helped. Now, I, ca I cannot claim that I was a genius. I was fortunate. I had great parents who guided me and I followed their direction. So um, it's the same thing. You have to create that environment. So if, if me, by me answering these requests and so on, um, helps people come to terms with or understand that, yes, there is a path for me here and I don't have to be uh, white, I don't have to be male, or I don't have to have 10 legs and four eyes, you know, to get in. It is possible. Um, then I think, especially with the ten legs, especially yeah. with the ten legs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, so um, so we we you know mentoring and and mentoring isn't just trying to get people in. It's also maintaining contact and showing the person signpost, being available at all stages of their career to say, listen, this is what I think you should do. I don't think you should do this, and so on and so forth. So the mentoring is a lifelong thing, especially if you establish an individual relationship with your mentee. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. I always try to get the, that experience and thoughts from um, those who have, you know, been through it and are currently practicing, um, and, you know, thoughts and ideas that they have, they, they feel and what they can share. Uh, so thanks for sharing that. You know, talking about the field of forensics and um, also, you know, discussing about, or even, I guess we can approach the subject um, about the um, unfortunate deaths of, of black males in custody um, and how we've seen it played out in the media. 
But on the forensics aspect, because I feel like that's also something that is not really um, exposed, I wonder if you had any thoughts about that um, and discussions. I know, for example, with um, the death of George Floyd, um, there was so much ire and um, discussion about like the uh, preliminary autopsy report that came out. And a lot of people were just like, we've all seen it, we've all seen it, you know, and that. But with forensics, there are ways where we have to incorporate all the data that we see. But just wanted to get your thoughts and discussion about that. Well, the fact of the matter is, if you are black, or uh, if you are, if you're black, or if you are um, mentally ill, uh, you have a there's a higher likelihood that you will die at the hands of police, and the you know well, there's no need to pretend that that doesn't happen. It does happen. We cannot ignore the statistics. The, this is these are cold hard facts. Uh, there's also the issue of um, you mentioned George Floyd. Um, you know, and I, I'll try not to digress too much, but I've take, I've looked at the deaths of of uh, people in police custody in a couple Western democracies: Australia, New Zealand, England, sorry, the United Kingdom, the U.S., and Canada. And the fact of the matter is, the pattern remains the same. If you're black or if you're mentally ill you're more likely to die at the hands of police than if you are white. Now, um, some people will say, well, yes, there are more white people killed by police. This is true. In absolute numbers, if you have, if 80% of the population is white, most of the victims are going to be white. There is no dispute there. But the issue is, if you're black, you don't expect to die at almost the same rate. Well, you don't expect people who look like you to die at almost the same rate as people who don't look like you. And there, therein lies the problem. So, um, so we do have a problem when it comes to policing of black bodies. Um, it's not disputed. I don't think there's any grounds to dispute it. The question is, what is done about it. Um, and I know in the United States there was a failed attempt to um, get law enforcement insured so that the more people that died at your hands, possibly the more um, your employer had to pay out to families which meant you cost the taxpayers money. And so rather than the taxpayers paying, you get yourself insured. I mean, I don't see the, I honestly don't see the problem with asking policemen to be insured for fatalities. Because you and I have to get malpractice insurance. Yes, we do. Nurses have to get yeah. malpractice insurance. And yeah. the reason is not is is the reason is to make sure that our employers are not liable and we're not personally bankrupted by a negative judgment. And we deal with people's lives every day, right? 
my thinking is if you are charged or permitted under the law to take a life, then circumstances dictate that you should have uh, some kind of question to answer. It might be insurance, it might be some other oversight review, I don't know, although I don't, I'm not so sure that oversight has done a particularly effective job in reducing the mortality rate of people of color at the hands of police. I think something has to change because the current model isn't working. So we have two situations. One, the fact of more people of color getting killed at the hands of police. Two, the fact that there seems to be some form of impunity. And maybe I'll get chastised for that, but if it keeps on happening year in, year out, year in, year out, it's a problem. The other thing is, government doesn't the, f the federal government doesn't keep official statistics on the number of ki people killed um, by police in the United States. So that is problematic, you know, that government doesn't have those statistics. The statistics we have come from non-government sources, mappingpoliceviolence.com, the Washington Post, and a couple other people. So in, at least in North America. So, so, so there is a problem. It hasn't been addressed, um, and that could be the subject of another show. I mean, I'm not a sociologist, but I have my own theories as to how we can make that better. Yeah, I was saying thank you for sharing your thoughts about it. I think it's it's definitely a difficult subject to, I guess, discuss. And I think you did put the relevant the relevant facts out there. Um, to open more discussions about what's needed. I think on multiple levels, like for example, me discussing it where it's like part of this is kind of like um, I see it happening and what can we do to do it, to make it better. And I think with forensics, you know, with the public health aspect, I think putting these numbers and at least just not, you know, showing what we can do in this field to, you know, have some sort of way of continuously, um, documenting what's happening i think it's for me that's how i see it um but yeah and i guess along with that with that discussing about um our being black uh, and in practice in medicine my, my next question is like how would you define your own blackness that's that's an interesting one, but I think um, I'll tell you this. Until I left West Africa, I didn't think of myself as black. I just thought of myself as Ken, you know, um, because I grew up in in a majority black environment. My teachers were black, my professors were black, you know, all the professionals I encountered were black, and so on. That's not to say that um, West Africa does not have its own problems. You know, I'm not in any way papering over the issues that we have in West Africa in terms of governance and so on. But mm -hmm. one thing I didn't have to, I didn't get about, get up, sorry, I didn't get out of my house every morning uh, wondering if I was going to be harassed by law enforcement, if I was going to be humiliated by law enforcement, if I was going to be um, looked down on by by people who are supposed to serve me, that was never a consideration. 
Um, so I define my blackness in terms of, first of all, my skin, my skin color. I'm a black man and I, I work in a majority white environment, which I have to say in this part of North America has been very welcoming. I, there are things that I've done in New Brunswick that I would not, I wouldn't get the benefit of that privilege elsewhere. I mean, I'll tell you a side story. I've, when I came here, there were gas pumps, right? Mm -hmm. But the gas pumps were not metered internally. They were not digital. So you had to tell them what you pumped or how much gas you pumped. And I remember telling the, the, the counter clerk that I had pumped $30 worth of gas. And it, to me, it was a shock because there's nowhere in the planet I'd been in, not even in West Africa, Jamaica, anywhere else, where people had taken my word on something financial. They would usually check. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I was surprised when she said, oh, 30, she, she, she typed in $13. I said, no, 30 and she said, oh, thank you for being honest. So apparently there were pe other people, not just people like me, not people who look like me, but there were, you know, because we we're, were, were very few here at the time, still quite few. But I was kind of taken aback that she relied on my honesty to provide uh, uh, an accounting for what I had taken, something that I had never, it was a shocker. Uh, the second one was, you know, we were uptown. West. I was still, I was still trying to, you know, settle in here, and so we're at a bus stop. And um, normally, you and I know this: when you sit at a bus stop, and the people who don't look like you, many times they're miles away from you, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and um, this, uh, you know, somebody came and sat beside me, and I thought it was my daughter because I was reading something. And when I looked up, it was a perfect stranger. And she just smiled and said, hi. And that was, I was shocked. So, so New Brunswick, St. John, I'm not, and I'm not saying that St. John does not have its own history. It does. And Canada as well has its own problems with racism, okay, which are not much different from the U.S. But I will say, as a black forensic pathologist in this part of the world, I've been treated very well. Um, so, so, but again, I trained, I did my postgraduate training in the U.S., so I'm very aware of the contrast in experiences. And I think, you know, um, uh, so, so, again, about my blackness, first of all, I'm a black man, all right? Um, secondly, I'm a black man who has um, an interesting cultural background. I'm a black man who's lived in uh, several places. And, and I, that's, that's how I see myself paradoxically. I don't define myself by, oh, well, I try not to define myself by how uh, the visible majority sees me. I try to define myself by what is important to me as an individual and as a black man. I share, uh, you and I may not have been raised in the same part of the world, but there's certain experiences we have in common, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and that's what makes us black to each other, right? Uh, that is an experience we have in common. And so um, it's more or less 
you know, the same thing. I mean, I am black because of who I am, because of my experiences with certain, with law enforcement, with the judiciary, and so on and so forth. I'm black because of my experiences with, 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 with the general public, uh, some members of the general public, and so on. So, um, but that's the neck. That's sometimes some of it is negative, but a lot of how I define myself is in the positive, where I'm coming from. And so on and so forth. You know, I I want to say that that um that bus story like resonated with me was resonated with me uh, because there's been many times where you know you take the bus or I take the bus, um, but um but you know and it, I and you see and there people come on and, you see, and there's the seats and the drivers are like please allow seats available for people coming on and if I'm sitting there first. You know, I, I people passing it, and the thought is like, I wonder if they're sitting there because they want to have like their own seat, which is understandable, of course. But also, like, are they? Do they have the subconscious thought or implicit bias of sitting next to a black person? Um, and you know, do I think more about it, or do should I care about it, or should I just enjoy the trip? You know, and I spend time thinking like, why did somebody kind of judge me and stuff like and stuff like that? Like, why? What's going on now? Maybe they just wanted to have their own seat, but that's kind of like the, the implication that unfortunately kind of reverberates throughout. Like, for example, that my trips, like, what's going on and why? It is true. You know, go ahead. It is true. It is true. It is true. It is, and unfortunately, it's something that you have to negotiate. As uh, it's one of the unfortunate aspects of the color of our skin of being black um i you know around here i don't i you know i will tell you i've gone into supermarkets i've gone into stores and i don't have people following me around right i don't have people following me around i went to see no i don't not in st john i don't know about toronto or ottawa those are different places but in st john i've gone into stores and it to me it's it's more of now to be followed around would be shocking and so it's like whenever i cross into the us on whatever business or whatever my prism my my, the, the, my frame my frame of reference changes i become more aware of okay i'm in the united states now and this is not a knock on <laughs> on the United States, right? I mean, uh, that's where my dad got his education. That's where I got my education. So there are, you know, the U.S. Um, for has its, um, there are a lot of good things about the U.S. But the way races, uh, people who are of a visible minority are treated, for the most part, has not been one of them. And so when I cross into the U.S., my my sensitivity changes. I become aware, okay, if I go into a store and somebody is following me, I shouldn't be surprised. It's par for the course. If, I, um, if I'm stopped by police, hands on the steering wheel, make sure they're all exposed and stuff. I've been stopped by police officers here, right? And one, the most recent encounter, the gentleman came up to the, to the, um, to to the driver's side, and my hands were down. I, you know, I felt so relaxed. I didn't even think that I should put my hands up on the steering wheel. And he didn't seem to have any fear that I was going to do anything to him. So, 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 
And again, I'm only speaking about my experience in a small part of right. Canada. It, it'll it'll probably be different, and it is different for 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 people of color in other parts. So so for me, and I know this. I know it is different because I I have friends and relatives who live elsewhere, and the stories I hear are very much what I have seen and experienced in the U.S. Or elsewhere, perhaps even in Western Europe. So um, f- you know, um, I have to be more aware. So I understand what you're saying. You know how it can color your trip. And there was one trip we made, and um, we we're passing through Washington D.C. or, or Pennsylvania. No, I think it was Philly. Philly, and we got on. You know these shuttles that they take you from the terminal to the plane, and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And I sat down, and there was an empty seat there to sit sit on. And even though it was standing room only, nobody came and sat on that seat. I was like, why is nobody sitting down? And I remember, oh, oh okay, yeah, I'm not in St. John anymore. Right. You know, and, and so you, you are right. And um, what I think we don't realize is the extent to which that can damage your psyche. You know, we don't. I, I, yeah, because it's interesting. We don't. I think it's more of like being on the defense. All the time, like leaving and okay, like let me see. You know, I I I tried to explain this to uh, a couple of my like white friends, and they just didn't really like. It was hard for them to grasp. I mean, one of them was like, "That's terrifying. Like, how are you just being in defense all the time?" And I'm like, "This is how I grew up. Like, this is how you know I ex- I have to learn to expose." myself to the world there are certain limitations i impose upon myself because i'm just like i have no idea how different situations occur and they could either be very benign to who knows and i don't want to know who knows like that 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 but no it's completely like true and it's just like you know when you were like uh that earlier story about going in and they just took you for your you know face value like i I mean I i was like what like you know, I kind of feel like you have to take multiple pictures and videos and call your family to say, hey, by the way, I'm doing this. This is where I'm at. This is how much I'm charging. You know, like you have to, I feel like you have to be constantly on the defense about what you're doing. But to, for somebody to be like, oh, wow, thanks for being truthful and like whatsoever without a second thought. Like, I'm like, where this, when is this Shangri-La? Like, what is this? Like, <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, it, it's amazing. It, it, like I said, it has, it has, it has. St. John is uh, New Brunswick is not innocent in terms of the its history. It's it's Canadian history, and um, not many people are aware that there were slaves in Canada and so on, and and there were rules and regulations that prevented black people from owning land or being in certain places after certain hours. They were all here. Um, so, you know, I'm not pretending that, you know, it's perfect. And there are racist people everywhere, you know. But, but I haven't, it has not been my experience that I wake up in the middle of the night wondering, okay, did was that guy um, nasty to me because, and I told one of the autopsy technicians this, he's now retired. I say, you as a white guy, if somebody's having a bad day, you don't think about it. You just say, you know, whatever. They're not being kind. They're having a bad day. And that's the end of it. I wonder, are they being bad because they are racist? 
I said, that thought crosses my mind. And it, unfortunately, it's something I have to consider, especially when what I'm dealing with is of concern. I was in court recently, and you know you have to pass through security and all that. And one of the uh, security officers was particularly, mm, I wouldn't say rude, but he seemed quite hostile. And, you know, that was the first time in years I'd felt that sort of you know, open, it seemed like open hatred, yeah, seemed yeah. like. So I, I asked a colleague of his who I knew well, I said, was this guy like that with everybody? I said, there's a particular guy who I saw and so on. He says, before I could finish, he said, is it X, Y, Z? I said, yes. He says, don't worry about it. He's like that with everybody. He's just, and he used the expletive that we all know. And I said, okay, fine. Uh, I felt right, better yeah. about I, it. it. You know, it's great that you had that reassurance at the end. Instead of like, you know, constantly wondering, even, I mean, for people listening to years down the road where you, you know, have time to relax and think. And then you think about this one time and like your thoughts go through this whole, you know, mild trend of like, I wonder why. Um, and I'm sure we could have like a whole three hour conversation about it. But I did have two more questions for you. Um, before we head off. So the first one is something I think you have definitely covered extensively. But I always ask this of all the guests that come on is, um, how do you think we can diversify in pathology? Well, it's, it's, it's um, basically, you know, what we had mentioned about mentoring and so on. We need to start early. We need to, and we need to start early in the right places. Um, the kids who go to private school are not... You know, expensive private schools are not your target audience. If you're missing a certain demographic, if you're missing students of color, if you're missing uh, students who have a different sexual orientation, if you're missing um, students who come from financially disadvantaged backgrounds, those are the people you need to target. So in other words, you know, when you say diversify, you you mean you have to define what you mean or what you want to diversify. And so once you know, and so we're not trying to diversify. We already know the history of medicine and so on. So we're looking for people who don't look like what I, and or not I, my parents would have envisioned as the gently family physician. Right, so you look. You have to go into. So what do you do? You have to go into the areas where those people can be found, and make sure that they are exposed to it. Make sure that there are possibilities. I mean, like I didn't know about it until I got into med school, and I wouldn't have got into med school but for my parents. So. To me, it's the, the example is self-evident. You have to start early. You have to go where these, these students are. If you want people, more kids from financially disadvantaged backgrounds, you need to go to the schools where they are, you know, where in financially disadvantaged areas. And that's the other problem with the way of education. Again, I don't want to take too long, but that's the other problem with the way fund education is funded in some parts of North America. It's dependent on the tax base of the local area. And if the tax base is poor, then the facilities at the school are, will be poor. Uh, on this side of the, of the parallel, 
um, many of the schools are practically all schools are state funded so you could be going to you could be sitting in the same class with the premier's daughter or the premier's kid or nephew or some higher ranking unless they send their kid to, to an exclusive private school but everybody more or less has access to the same sort of quality education um, or to the same standard of education so but again you don't have that situation uh, south of the parallel so um, you have to go where these kids are and say, listen, you know, you guys may not be aware of it, but there's a world out there beyond where you, you know, the, what you consider to be the epitome of existence. There's a world out there. There are so many things you can do. There's this career option and so on. Then you go to your colleges, you go to universities and try to recruit from where those students would typically go or make it such that they can find you whether on the internet or through the internet or so accessibility is the most important thing and putting our goods out on the store and i sort of i appreciate the initiative that name is taking in trying to um have these lectures so that more people can see them and see different faces in pathology so it, it has to be, it's not a passive thing. It has to be an active thing. It has to be by design. Um, we cannot let fate dictate the circumstances. We have to make those circumstances such that um, we dictate the outcome. What are ways people can follow you via social media to see how your career flourishes? Well, <laughs> I don't know about the career flourishing, but... Um, I, I used to be active on, let me see, on LinkedIn and, and so on, but my, my, I use Twitter more or less to communicate, and my Twitter handle is mlegiste, L M and then L-E-G-I-S-T-E, it's French for uh, medical examiner, mlegiste uh, at, you know, whatever, twitter.com. I don't think it's twitter.com. It's at, at mlegist. That's the handle. So um, you can always find me there. Um, my email um, is uh, kenneth.obenson at horizonnb.ca. And you can find me on LinkedIn if you type in my name. So I will get the message one way or the other. All right. And thank you so much for being a part of the podcast in this episode is there any words or wisdom that you want to give the audience before we head off uh what words of wisdom i don't consider myself a particularly wise person but i would say follow your passion you know um there will always be people no matter how challenging it may seem there are always going to be people who will help you along the way there'll be many people who do, who will try to put you down but you will always find one or two people maybe more who will who are so important in your career development that you look back and say yes you know those those were important to me so follow your passion that's what i would say all right thank you so much for joining i'm so glad we had this conversation sure um, i'm so glad you were able to come on thanks thanks a lot thank you very much hi again friends well this is it for today's episode Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to the Diversified Math Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode, and hope to see you soon.